0: All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fern and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith, in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Awesome. Leave a a quick pause for Marty and then we'll jump in. Sound good? All right. Well, welcome back to yet again, another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. And with me today is Greg Ferrand. No more board meetings. Greg (laughs) is hanging out. (laughs) That's right, man. What up, what up?
1: What up, What up? Yeah, sometimes the schedule uh, interferes with our podcasting, but I was glad that for us, and, and Tom, I'm not sure where you're located, we're about to introduce, which you you know, uh, listener, if you've listened to us before, Tom Ord, about to introduce him in a second, but uh, Josh and I are on the East Coast and it's nine o'clock, so we are, this is a late night uh, podcast for us, but we are stoked to do it because our guest tonight is Tom Ord, who uh, is the 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 bad granddad of open and relational theology <laughs> that makes me sound old no baby i was gonna say you're i'm young. not that old i'm sorry that's that's a that's yeah, a, that, a that's a reference that's that's a that's a reference to love actually of the bad grand bad granddad of rock and roll but anyway uh so so tom i tom know he uh,
0: uh Greg's been watching recently. (laughs) I do. It's a Christmas
1: movie. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies. I'm not proud of it, but it's true. In fact, just as an aside... It's it's really uh not appropriate for children and uh a couple of years ago I used I used it as a Christmas Eve sermon illustration to a packed church with you know hundreds and hundreds of people. Now granted I gave a parental warning about not having the the rector of the church the next day reached out and I said I he said I can't believe that you recommended people watch that movie. I was like oh crap. I am in trouble. Anyway, so Tom is the the father not the, the bad granddad. The father of open <laughs> and relational theology he actually coined that phrase, and tonight we get to talk with him about a, a book that uh, is coming out, and we're very excited about it. In fact, dude, I'm I'm telling you, man, like like Tom uh, with with process theology, open and relational theology, it it finally feels like you know my my mind, my heart, and my body are in alignment. You know, it's mm. I'm, I'm not I, I'm not having to do. I, I remember back in the late '90s when I went to Reformed Theological Seminary. And I was approaching the Bible kind of as a constitutional scholar, uh, yeah. chapter and verse, to figure out God's opinion, uh, yeah. the right way on everything. And you ha- and and, <laughs> and the entire thing was this perfect and word of God. So when the the Egyptians were bobbing in the ocean, uh, bobbing in the Red Sea, and we had to celebrate that, or or when yeah. uh, Moses was commanding people to run through the Israelites, slaying people with swords, you had to justify it in some way. And right. and I feel like. What what you offer, what you're describing, is something that is so resonant with what we are the scientists are discovering in the universe, the reality of the nature of mm-hmm. uh, the cosmos, uh, and it's also so which which and then ironically, pulling us back to what I think is uh, resonant within the very heart of scripture, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 many of the perspectives articulated there. So I'm I'm digging it. And uh, Josh, yeah. <laughs> Josh, just for our podcast tonight for the the Zoom invitation uh josh titled it omnipotence is stupid
2: <laughs> which, I, which
1: I don't know maybe he'll make that maybe josh will make that the title of our podcast but we're going to be it's, it's its not just ripping apart the concept of omnipotence but we're going to be uh introducing our listeners to a new word which i believe actually I'm, I'm dead serious about this i believe tom that the word you're introducing will become codified uh will become cataloged uh within uh, our 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 language uh, it, within the, the, the entire theological uh, uh, realm because it 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 so gorgeously distills the heart of so much of what you share i'm i'm oh, not going to spoil yeah. it with what it is but dude i'm 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 stoked but uh, anyway sorry i'm i'm a little
2: fanboying right now but uh, <laughs> we're dude, so, just so glad you're here tom thanks for yeah. thanks for being here well thanks for letting me i mean i, I think about tonight kind of like an opportunity for me to workshop some ideas in the sense of like throw some things out get some feedback from you and and i'm in the middle of writing this book so this conversation will definitely influence things i i say and so thanks for the opportunity
0: yeah Todd. Ta- like uh I, I don't know i'm just excited to talk about it. <laughs> good <laughs> and it's yeah it's fun. I, and I think too, I mean, I've said this, I think the last like two or three times you've been on here, but you still hold the record for like the most prominent guests as in like you've been on the most. <laughs> on oh, <Rethinking> uh, <laughs> and so yeah, like,
2: that's an honor. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And I think Greg, like Tom has to just become automatically like an honorary co-host, even though oh, Tom's he definitely not is. present <laughs> for yep. every episode. I'll send you the card and the it's badge like, <laughs> and the <credentials. laughs>
2: uh,
0: no, yeah, so uh, Tom, you have uh, a new book coming out uh called so correct me if I'm wrong. I'll, I don't remember the subtitle, but the 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 main title is the Death of Omnipotence.
2: Is that yes. correct? yeah, so i'm I'm leaning toward this is my title and subtitle, The Death of Omnipotence: The Birth of Amnipotence. That's that word that Greg was mentioning that's a new word we I want to explore tonight with you.
1: Right on. Well, and so so uh, before I get, you know, when I was in Reformed theological seminary in my early, and I was a five point Calvinist uh, uh, back in the day, and uh, omnipotence was uh, articulated as not only just the, the the nature of the divine, but was our greatest comfort. Uh, mm. And uh, and I remember I had a friend of mine who was a pastor who had a, a teenage son that was being rolled into surgery and, uh, was not sure what the outcome would be. And I remember for him, he told me at that time that omnipotence, that, that, that God was all powerful, whether his son lived or died would ultimately be his comfort. Uh, and so, and I remember listening to that and I felt some dissonance, you know, when he said it, and I've got three boys of my own and I was kind of trying to put myself in his own, in, 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 in their shoes and kind of in my own experience, like, uh, Omnipotence on the surface, the idea that God is all powerful uh, and uh, holds all things within that divine control, or we could probably even say in my tradition, his control, um, that uh, there's some comfort that if, if, if calamity befalls, if disaster happens, then there's some hope that there's some greater purpose or meaning uh, to yep. that suffering uh, under the divine plan. Uh, and then you're then, of course, you're having to like read the tea leaves or and if you can't read the tea leaves to find some silver lining in the suffering, then you just have to say, "Well, shit, I've just got to hold on to faith uh, <laughs> yeah. that 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 God is good. But no. in my own journey, as I started experiencing, it was kind of like a I found that to be kind of a shiny, it was almost like a shiny ball that on the outside was so uh, beautiful, but as i I pressed into it, mm. it 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 was full of shadow. It was full of pain. It was full of fragility. It was whipped cream. It was like my hands went right through it. There was no genuine solidity to it. I had to do so much denial, repression, and ignoring of reality in order to find any sense of pseudo-comfort in omnipotence. Uh, And conversely, the idea that God is not all-powerful on the surface seems chaotic. Uh, mm-hmm. seems dark and dangerous, but mm-hmm. when you press into it, there's actually far more comfort, resonance and uh, I found internal harmony and hope. Uh, but mm. but that's so, so just as we come out of the gate with this, uh, could you kind of nutshell for us your definition of omnipotence uh, and why it would be a healthy thing for it to die?
2: Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're starting with what I kind of think of as the psychological response to uh, omnipotence, because what you are telling us is what a lot of people, I think, feel when it comes to omnipotence. Initially, a sense of comfort. God's in control. It doesn't matter how bad things are getting. It doesn't matter how confused I am. I don't understand the world I I live in. I don't know why God doesn't stop Putin in Ukraine and God doesn't do X, Y, and Z, but God's in control. I mean, that's the way some people think. And it does, for many people, initially provide comfort. And then they start asking questions, they start going through horrendous suffering in their own life and the world, they start weighing the balance of justice in the world, and all of a sudden, it's not so comfortable anymore. And so, um, you know, there's still probably still, I'm sure there are still people who find comfort in it and go their whole life feeling comfortable, but I'm not one of those that it sounds like you guys aren't either. So... Um, what do we mean by omnipotence? Maybe we should start there. In the book, I offer three ways of thinking about omnipotence. One is characterized by Augustine and a children's song that I uh, was taught when I was uh, young. The song goes, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. Augustine says the same thing. God is omnipotent. There's nothing that God can't do. So there's one way to think about it. Second way to think about omnipotence is to literally take the words omni and potent and say that God exerts all power. Everything that happens is God. This week, sometimes in theology, call this theological determinism or monergism. And you'll find this view in a lot of Calvinist circles. God does everything. That's the second possible view of omnipotence. Third view is that God is in control or could control in any particular situation. Now, this third view of omnipotence is is a view that can be held, let's say, by a Wesleyan or or an Arminian who thinks that God doesn't predestine, who believes in free will, but they still think God is omnipotent in the sense that God is making sure... Things go, the big things at least, go the way God wants. God can step in and bang out a miracle here or unilaterally determine history to a particular end. So, those are the three meanings of omnipotence I'm dealing with in the book. To repeat them again God can do anything, God yeah. exerts all power, or God controls. And I'm denying all three of those.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Exit.
2: No, so it's, gonna,
1: it's, it's, i could go
2: into detail but it's good I didn't name to that ramble. out of the
1: gate It just
0: it's come right
1: out of the gate and just lay the, lay down the gauntlet
0: yeah <laughs> no it's but it's 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 deeply helpful and and tom we you know in our, our past conversations both on air and off you know we've we've talked about this before but for me and it i mean it fits in all three of these uh categories that you just named But one of the things that drew me to a more open and relational perspective was the problem of evil Um, and having to either somehow say God like preordained and calls causes evil to genuine evil to happen, Uh, like pick an extreme example, the Holocaust or God just allowed that to happen uh, neither of which was ever very satisfying to me. Right. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's kind of what led me into your work, right? Um, and that's kind of how I i, uh, I got connected to you. Um,
2: well, so, I would yeah, like I think to... you
0: named it well, yeah.
2: Well, thanks. I would like to pick your guys's brain on that particular topic, the problem of evil. Obviously, I've thought a lot about it, but I want to hear from you what you think are the pressing questions But before we get to that, is it okay if I kind of lay out my arguments in the first two chapters? Because chapter three is evil. Can I sort of lay out where I'm before I get to that chapter? All right.
1: Lay it down, dude. Lay
2: it down. Because I think I'm so jacked about these two chapters that I've I've already written one of them and about half of the other one, and I'm just super pumped about them. So the first chapter is the Bible chapter. And it asks the question, is omnipotence, or even the word almighty, are those ideas or words in Scripture? Well, if we go to the English Bible, starting with the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, there are two words or phrases that are in English translated almighty or God almighty. The first one is Shaddai or El Shaddai. And it's one of the oldest names for God in Scripture. The word does not mean Almighty or God Almighty. It means breasts or mountains. And so when you read the word Shaddai in Scripture, in the context, you see there's references to fertility and breasts and nourishment. So this is the God who nourishes. And then sometimes Shaddai is related to mountains for refuge. And of course, breasts look like mountains. So there's some similarities there. So when English translators are using the word Almighty, they're translating a word that most scholars would say means either breasts or mountains. The second phrase in Hebrew that is translated Almighty is uh, Sabaoth, or Elohim Sabaoth, Adonai Sabaoth, El Sabaoth. Those are all God words followed by the word Sabaoth. Sabaoth means hosts. Or councils or armies, so God of the hosts or God of the group, God of the army, it doesn't mean almighty or omnipotent. So we've got these two Hebrew words that do not mean Almighty or omnipotent. But if you look in your Bible, if if you happen to see like an interlinear Bible that can compare the Hebrew with the English, you'll find Almighty showing up. It's very strange. They don't mean that. Well, how did this occur? Well, in the third and fourth centuries, when uh, Greek scholars translated the Hebrew scriptures, they chose a word "Pantocrator," Panto meaning all, crater meaning something like hold or attain. And so this word "Pantocrator" sounds kind of like almighty or all powerful, even though crater against means like hold or seize or, or something like that. And so in this Septuagint, We have a word that takes the the Hebrew words Shaddai and Sabaoth and replaces it with the Greek word Pantocrator. That word then shows up in the New Testament, but it only shows up 10 times in the entire New Testament so we only get the translation almighty in the new testament from this word 10 times which is a really small number of times given all the times almighty or omnipotent shows up in the christian tradition nine of those times pantocrator appears in script, in the new testament is in the book of revelation and it's a comparison to the god of the age or the I'm sorry the rulers of the age that have limited power but god is uh, god's influence is universal the only other time Pantocrator occurs in the New Testament, Paul uses it, and he's referencing the Septuagint. So he's referencing the mistranslation of the Hebrew words. Then in the third century, or I believe it's fourth century. No, I've got to get my centuries. Anyway, a few centuries later, when Jerome is translating into the Vulgate, he uses the word omnipotence, which, from which we get omnipotent. So the first chapter is making this argument. The word omnipotent or almighty isn't in the Bible. And even the ideas or the meaning of those words isn't in the Bible. Those of you who are, those people who are listening to this, who think they have to hold on to omnipotence because that's what the Bible says. I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't support omnipotence. That's chapter one. Mm. Shall I stop there for a second before boom. I boom? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I would love no, I'd love
0: I'd love to comment on that. Uh yeah, that's awesome, Tom. I I um it's cool to I love the the tracing of, you know, like the etymology of words or or how they come, you know, how words come to be about. And it's interesting. Um, I didn't know that uh, you know, I didn't know that specific translation history that you laid out. Um and it's interesting, especially to me, because within my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, a lot of our understanding of like God within Christian the Christian tradition, like the Omni stuff, comes from like Greek philosophy and like these like ancient understandings of like perfection, Allah, like Plato and like Aristotle and such. Right. And so it's not a surprise then to me to see that, um, I, I was going to say it one way and it wasn't very kind, Um, but that like the <laughs> word got like translated differently into Greek and then into the, the Vulgate's Latin, right? So then read, yes. you know, translated into Latin um, to like come to be this other thing. So that's like where my yeah. mind went at first. It seems, it seems to make sense based off what I know about Greek philosophy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point.
1: And and I think too, you know, just getting back, you know, I'd be curious, Tom, in terms of just when we un- sort unpacking the Hebrew Scriptures uh, and uh, the, this notion of Almighty or um, uh, omnipotent, again, so dissonant with what the stories uh, that right. we read in Exodus or of, of God changing His mind. Uh, but I, I wonder if you just kind of comment, not only just on the 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 word level but just even on the story level uh, right
2: that's a section of that chapter so after i sort of lay out the etymology the words and say look the words almighty or omnipotent are in the bible then i ask the question okay well maybe the words aren't there but maybe the idea is maybe the idea that god can do anything or control or exerts all power or can control maybe that's in scripture and first, I look at the one that God exerts all power. Well, if that's true, then God is exerting power for people to sin. And so it's just really hard to look at Scripture and say everything that happens is God doing it all. You just have to, you have to pretend that when it says Abraham did X, it was really God doing X. You know, And there's some theological systems that will do that, but it just doesn't mesh well with the text. The second move is to say, well, what about God being able to do anything? Now, this is a little bit more interesting because, you know, in the New Testament, we've got phrases like nothing is impossible with God or God can do all things. And it says in uh, Job. So in that section, I contrast it with about at least a dozen passages in Scripture that says God can't do some things. God can't tell a lie, for instance. God can't deny God's self. God can't be tempted. God can't grow tired. There's a great passage in the Old Testament in which the Lord is with the Israelites, and they go up against another army, and the other army has iron chariots, and the Lord can't defeat those with the iron chariots. (laughs) And so it's like, there's all these biblical texts that talk about things God can't do. And so I make the argument that we we obviously must have to, if we're gonna reconcile these two, we can't say they're both correct. And then the third one, and this is, I think, the strongest case for omnipotence in scripture, even though I, I reject it. It's the idea that says, look, if God creates the heavens and the earth, if God rescues Israel from Pharaoh, If God does these miracles, if God resurrects Jesus from the dead, if we have any hope that God's going to bring things all right at the end, well, then God must be omnipotent. God must have controlling power. And on that argument, I say, well, I can see how people might assume that's the case, but does the Bible actually say that? Does the Bible actually say that God alone brings about some outcome and there was no creaturely contribution? from the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to the creation of the world, and I say I know of no biblical passage, front to end, in which it says God alone brings about some outcome, and there was no creaturely contribution. So that's a theme I want to pick up later in the book when I come back to my constructive view of divine power, because I'm going to say God does act, but God in love requires creaturely cooperation. All right. Yeah. Can I jump to chapter two? Yeah, we, sure. We don't want the Bible. <laughs> <it is, man. laughs> no, it that's good. I've got can about I...
1: hundred more hundred more thoughts, but we'll save this. Dude, you gotta, you gotta keep rolling. Keep going. In, in chapter two. Yeah,
0: and can I comment? I just want to comment too, really quickly on your use of scripture, Tom, because that's something that Great. like even though um like I mean, Mike, and this is not news to the listeners, but a confession of mine is like I don't spend all that much time in the Bible. I've read the whole Bible more than once. Um, I've studied it. However, I find theology and philosophy way more fun <laughs> than than some of the Bible stuff. Not to hate on the Bible, because there is fun Bible stuff. Like I talked to Daniel Kirk. You know, we we talked to Daniel Kirk the other night. Um, about the Book of Romans. But what I appreciate is like in your, in your previous book, uh, Full, and love, you use so much scripture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for two reasons. One, it helps uh, connect and build a bridge for people who that's mm-hmm. still something that is very important for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's huge because a lot of the times within theological realms, you know, when there's like the other, so to speak, we just kind of ignore them, and we're like, "Well, let's just write to the people that already agree with me." So I respect yeah. that, and but also I think it's important because um, even though theology and biblical scholarship are like kind of separated, um, I think that the two need to come together and and uh, mm-hmm. inform one another, and so it's it's cool to see uh, see you engage scripture in a way that's meaningful. Um, and also I think it's helpful then too, because then it can inform our theology and be like, well, hold a minute. Like, like, let's look at this for a second. Uh, yeah. there are a lot of people like my friend, or I'm not going to say his name, but I have a friend who's like, I read the Bible plainly. Uh, however, then they import ideas like omnipotence plainly. into the text <laughs> when they're reading. Yeah, And so the idea is not there on the face of the text. And I'm not saying they're doing it to be malicious, but I think it's helpful to point out that like, well, if we actually look at this, maybe it's not quite as obvious as you are saying it is. So I I really appreciate that with your engagement in scripture, because I know that's a a difficult thing to do. So I I appreciate that you take the time to do that in your work. So thanks. Yeah.
1: And and Tom, just before you jump in there, it makes me think about it. So I, I live in North Carolina, which is in the Bible Belt, right? So uh, I saw a bumper sticker the other day, and this speaks to your point, Josh. The bumper sticker said, God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? And so, uh, it's which is this fundamentalist view that th- this is the Bible is clear as a bell. You know, you either believe it or you don't and w- which i think is i think one of the greatest uh ha- most harmful aspects toxic aspects of uh, any uh religious tradition particularly within the christian tradition that says this is the one way whether it is penal substitutionary atonement or uh y- you name that this is the gospel this is truth and if it is uh, uh varied from this then you are off the bible you are you are wrong and uh, I had a, a conversation with, uh, uh, trip, uh, this morning, uh, from homebrewed and we were talking about, he gave kind of seven different possibility, uh, perspectives on the incarnation. And he said, yeah. all of them could be found gorgeously within different, uh, uh, desert, you know, d- different, uh, fathers and mothers of the church and gorgeously accepted. And he was just saying that you go with anyone you want, you know, look, they're, they're all beautiful and they're all biblical and they're all historical. And, but but the freedom to begin to question, or I think one of the the greatest dangers is when we think this is the way, uh, yeah. and 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 this is the only way, instead of the willingness to open up. And it reminds me, and I guarantee, I'm I'm just teeing you up, Tom. But okay. it reminds <laughs> me of, uh, of 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 back when uh, you know it in in the, the 15th century when Copernicus and Galileo were discovering that the uh, universe was not uh, uh, that the, the, the Earth was not the center, but it was a heliocentric uh, versus a geocentric solar system, and that was so disturbing. That was so explosive that both right. the, the Catholic cardinals and Martin Luther himself and, and and Melanchthon said, "This guy needs to be locked up, put in prison. He's a heretic." because it was so threatening to the system. Um but but we found that of course it was not threatening to the system but that within the scientific discoveries that theology and interpretation evolved to recognize the gorgeousness as in, in the expanse. And in many ways I feel like what you are describing is a part of that continuing evolution and may that evolution continue for 500 more years from now uh when people are discussing <laughs> uh the new discoveries discoveries within, you know, uh quantum physics and and whatever. But but t- to me I think What you're describing is the freedom to explore, and that we're finding that 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 the 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 inherent nature of Scripture, that the dance within the Scriptures is inviting us to bring our presence uh, to, uh, I guess, engage, imagine. Uh, a new creation, new possibility to engage the story, the 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 myth, and I don't mean myth is in false. I mean myth is the truest truth, uh, in in terms of uh, sparking uh, the, the the depth of the greatest truth uh, for hope. And, yeah, and
2: theology's not done yet. We there's still creative work to be done. And
1: take that now. So so, so run with that. So so that being said, there's still work to be done. Theology is not done. We, and I'm not going to get into the can and closed, you know, blah blah blah. But uh, yeah. <laughs> th- there's, but the theology the, that theology is open. We're discovering, we're experiencing. So, so with that said, with with kind of pushing against the arguments of omnipotence, uh, and saying that th- they're recognizing the inherent toxicity, harm of that doctrine. The, the I would say the pseudo comfort uh, of that perspective. Uh, wh- where
2: do you go in chapter two? Chapter two. So one of the one of the uh, definitions of Almighty is that God can do anything, uh, and you know there's some biblical uh, phrases that make it sound that nothing is impossible for God. And famous main theologians from Augustine to Aquinas to Luther to people today will say, well, God can do anything and nothing's impossible. But they'll quickly qualify that. They'll say, well, God can do anything, but God can't make two plus two equals seven. But God can't make a married bachelor. But God can't make a square circle. These are contradictions. And then they'll add, well, God can do anything, but God can't stop existing. God can't be omnipresent and not be in Las Vegas. God can do anything, but God can't not know X, Y, or Z. In other words, very conservative to liberal thinkers have said that they've wanted to qualify omnipotence. And so chapter two of my book has a title that I just love. It's called Omnipotence Dies the Death of a Thousand Qualifications. And what I'm doing in this chapter is going... Uh, Through all of these logical contradictions, geometrical, mathematical contradictions based on God's nature, based on ontology, and then to some more interesting ones that a lot of people probably know, like, you know, can God make a free uh, being and also control it? So the questions of free will and these kinds of things. And I'm just listing qualification after qualification. Many of these aren't, the, the vast majority aren't new, but I'm cataloging them. And at the end of the chapter, I say, okay, do you really want to say God is omnipotent after I've got all of these examples and I could give thousands more of qualifications people make to omnipotence? And then I say this, what makes omnipotence particularly odd is that the word to most people means without qualification. (laughs) So in other words, omnipotence sounds like it's unlimited. And then you're placing all these limits on it. So it undermines the very word. I call it dictiocide, which means the death of a word. Um, and so that's the whole chapter is looking at philosophical objections, omnipotence, based on contradictions, based on God's nature, based on the God-robe relationship based on God's relation to time or not relation to time and saying, okay, you're just fooling, you're just playing games if you wanna to continue to use a word omnipotent and then make all these qualifications to it. All right, chapter three is the problem of evil. And this is where I really love to hear you guys' thoughts. Um, I guess what I'm looking for here, Um, you've read some of my work on this in the past. I'd like to hear from you guys what you think works well and what you think maybe I've missed or haven't emphasized enough. Maybe questions people have from your listeners, like, you know, Tom never really addressed this issue. Um, But the third chapter is basically that the problem of evil kills omnipotence actually i'm i'm calling i'm saying it buries it six feet under i'm trying to use dramatic death very death phrases very dramatic (laughs) yeah (laughs) so thoughts now i'll be the interviewee and you could be the or the interviewer you could be the interviewees go
1: ahead go ahead josh i've got many but you go ahead buddy yeah sure so i'm trying to think because um
0: i mean it's difficult as somebody who finds your um you know, solution to the problem of evil compelling. Uh, I know though, because I've, I've taught um, these kind of things in, in multiple settings. And one thing that seems to come up a lot is like, it seems like there are things that uh, we, as people can do uh, that seem loving that when we say God, if God does them, it's not loving. For example, uh, you know, take, you know, um, there is a person, you know, walking down the street, like a little kid, they're riding their scooter, eating an ice cream, having fun, and there's a car coming. And I'm walking down the street and I see that this car is going to wipe this, you know, poor child out. If I were to run out and grab that child or push that child out of the way so they don't get hit from the, you know, from the car, that would sound very seem like a loving thing for me to do as a person. I save that person's life. However, Within a framework of God can't where God doesn't control or coerce, um, you know, if God were to make that happen, why is that not loving for God? So that's a lot of the feedback I get. It comes to it, yeah. it, more so in the realm of like, how come there are things that people can do that we would call loving, but if God were to do it, perhaps that's not the greatest thing.
2: I get that that all the time too. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Here's what I'm thinking about doing. And I might change it if you convince me otherwise. I'm actually thinking about putting that discussion in that philosophy chapter I just got to. And have one big section called God can't pick up a rock. And in that section, talk about God being an omnipresent universal spirit without a divine hand to pick up rocks. And you and I can do that. But because we have hands, but because God's a spirit, God can't. And I've actually, in uh, the last year or so, found some other uh, thinkers who make that kind of claim. So I'm not like the only one who's saying it. So I can reference a few other people. Anyway, maybe if I address that in the philosophy chapter, it'll be a natural move then when I come to the problem of evil and address, you know, well, if it's loving to rescue a child by grabbing it before it goes in the street, then why doesn't God do that? that Yeah, no. Yeah,
0: I think I think that's a that's a nice transition. And I mean, the you know, the idea that like, oh, God doesn't have a localized body. um, And therefore, can't just like, do that. Uh, I think to me, at least makes makes sense. I think too, like, I don't know how to how to put this like in a in question form. But one thing that I've noticed is that so like you operate out of a like a very specific framework. like you have your own like philosophical presuppositions. um you're coming from like some kind of like open relational process relational framework. um you have your own opinions about like what God like what we even when we say the word God, what that even means. Sure. Um, And so then I feel like at least what I've noticed from engaging with your work as somebody who didn't have those perspectives and then came to have these perspectives is that um, now a lot of the times when I read your work and you make arguments, I'm already operating out of that framework. And I'm like, yes, makes sense. However, as like a person who wasn't operating out of that framework, I was just like lost
2: Yep. Does that make yep. sense?
0: Yep. So like I but I think you do a really good job of uh breaking down these big concepts and making them uh understandable and so then yeah. people can digest it in like these bite-size um pieces and that's I mean that's what helped me drastically but I think maybe some of the disconnect comes sometimes when it's like there's this framework that you're writing and operating out of and then there's people who just yeah, like yeah. I, I have the same problem when I try to talk to friends about it, that their idea of God is just like a dude in the sky kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> not, that's a you know, that's not fair, but you know what I'm saying. So yeah, I don't know if that's yeah. helpful, but that's it just something helpful. that yeah, yeah that I notice. Cool. So, Thanks. Greg, any thoughts on the problem of evil stuff?
1: Yeah, and let me kind of nest this in story, kind of in my own personal journey. So I remember um when my kids were young they're they're older now but i remember there were uh there were uh five three and a newborn uh and they were in the house and it was uh middle of the night i i woke up <clears throat> probably had a rem sleep you know so the the parts of my brain you know middle of the night think the thoughts are not happy thoughts and um i i thought i heard a noise downstairs and i had you know there's it's a three the three bedrooms are upstairs uh, the kitchen and the rest house downstairs and I and I hear this noise, and the kids are asleep, and I'm convinced that someone has broken into the house. Um, and in that moment, you know the the dark thoughts start rolling in. You know all the horrible scenarios of what could happen. This per, you know, it could be you know someone on drugs is going to come in and you know murder my kids and assault my wife, and I'll be unable to do anything. Like all the thoughts start rolling, and then the invitation is what well, what what can you do? You can pray. Um, and so I'm in the bed and I'm saying, well, what is that going to do? Cause I've got, I've got friends I, and this is the thought in the night. I've, I've got a dear friend who just two years ago was raped in a parking lot, a Christian woman raped in a parking lot. And I've got other friends who have kids who have died. There's, I can pray, but what is that going to do? Where 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 is my comfort? You know where is my hope? You know wh- where is God in the reality of I'm in the middle of the night. I hear a noise. I think someone's broken into my house. And uh, where 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 is God with me in the uncertainty of life? In the reality that we live in a world of suffering and pain. And of course, I've got people who are friends who bad things have technical or bad things have not necessarily happened to but most of my friends there's been technical or bad things have happened to it's certainly not based on faithfulness uh my most faithful friends are the ones that come the the worst shit happens to um and so i guess so in in engaging the problem of evil nesting it in my story uh what do we do with that i I mean i I guess we're saying you know I was challenged with the limitedness of omnipotence in that moment because it yep. didn't make sense. And so, and I remember the next but, day I got up, I, I and let me just, kind of, I, I went to Starbucks and I had a journal and I was this weird, I was a young Presbyterian pastor. This is when I was still PCA. And I was crying and journaling like, like a weirdo at Starbucks. And I just was wrestling with how is there possibly hope? And the only place I got to is I have no fucking clue. Uh, but I'm concluding that God is good. Like it was like, it was way early, way way before this was like, this was like nine, this was like 2003, right? This is just really early. And, and, but it was like, what is this piece that transcends all understanding? It certainly can't be based in circumstance, but it was this wrestling of the problem of evil and where there's hope. So I guess, I'm sorry, you, I interrupted you, but we No, no. I mean,
2: there, I think your question is so good because it's, it's where we're all at. And, and, um, you know, My solution to the problem of evil says God can't single-handedly stop whoever it is down in your house who's broken in. Um, Now, my view is that God is active and can uh, call you to do whatever the best is in the situation give you ideas on how you might respond in the least violent way possible, that God is active in relation to the intruder and calling the intruder not to do anything harmful, but the intruder can decide not to cooperate with God. So God can't stop the intruder. Um, and so I don't provide the kind of hope that would be really nice to say, well, I know if I pray, God's going to stop it's gonna work thing. out. It's yeah, going to work exactly. out.
1: Rainbows and bluebirds.
2: And so, you know, when people hear me say that, they go, well, what good is God then? And And I say to them, well, you know, What's the situation you're in right now? (laughs) The situation you're in right now is that you think God could stop that intruder, but doesn't. That sucks. Like, you know, is it really better off thinking that God could have prevented that woman's rape in the parking lot, but decided to allow it? I sure don't think so. And so ultimately, I have to come down on the side, at least I choose to come down on the side that says, God is a good God. God is a loving God, and God calls me and everyone else to do what's loving, but we can ignore. We can choose not to cooperate, and that means that God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. that seems to fit the world better than the alternative. <laughs> so I may not have the hope of a God who can single handedly rescue, but I've got the hope of a God who always loves, and it kind of seems to be this is the way the wor- the world actually works, <laughs> and I think that's that's a positive dimension, a positive uh, point in the favor of the the view that I'm proposing.
1: Nice, and I think it's far more far more resonant with reality and. Yeah. It's not a uh, Santa Claus God that is going to yeah. you know, promise you your favorite present. But I also think that uh, it, I do think it's way better than the idea that God could have prevented that tragedy, but didn't. I do
2: too. Yeah. Uh, I think and, I've said this before on this program, but I, I want to say it again. I, I had a, conversation with a former theo- theologian colleague maybe about 10 years ago and we were talking about these issues and i was explaining you know the god i believe in as i just mentioned and and he says half joking half serious he says tom your god is just doing the best he can and i responded yeah your god could be doing a whole lot better but chooses not to mm. and ultimately i think that's the issue I'm willing to. I'm willing to say, yep, God's doing the best God can do, but just can't so prevent evil single-handedly. Because I think that's a better option than saying God could be doing a whole lot better, but doesn't apparently love us enough to do so. Wow. Yeah,
0: yeah. I. Yeah, and I. I concur with that. I. That's far more compelling for me. Um. And one, uh, just I guess another question when it comes to like problem of evil stuff. Uh, as you were speaking that came to mind is and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're within your perspective, you uh, hold to this idea that like uh, creation and God kind of like necessarily coexist together. Right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So within that understanding, then where does evil come from? Yeah. So like if we if we made it even like simpler, if we believe in a God who is love and non coercive that created, you know, the world, the earth, creation, however you want to say it, um, how then did evil enter into this picture?
2: Yeah. Yeah, in my view God has always been creating in relation to what God previously created. So you're right, there's a necessary God-world relationship, and by necessary I don't mean just philosophically necessary, I mean everlastingly so. And that means in my way of thinking, the possibility for evil is always present to the creaturely others. There's a possibility for evil is baked into the the created order because there's value claims, there's choices being made, there's agency, even at the smaller levels. So the question of where did evil come from, I would say the question is, how did the possibility of evil even emerge? And the answer in my view is, it's the possibility is baked into creation itself, not the necessity but the possibility for evil is baked into creation. And I don't know that that that's that odd of a claim. Uh, I think a lot of people would want to say, you know, being creaturely means the possibility to do evil. But what makes my claim a little weird is to, for some people is that I don't think God started from zero. I don't think God created out of nothing. If I did, then I'd have to say God is the one who made evil a possibility. Uh, And that sort of puts the onus on God. In my thinking, God has to create and God everlastingly creates. So evil is baked into create the possibility for evil is baked into creation.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I so and this is this is completely me asking a selfish question right now. Good. Can I uh, affirm what you just said? You basically neglect Creation X Nihilo, and and also hold to a, a perspective of like some form of personal idealism. Do they go Definitely. together?
2: Definitely.
0: Okay. Definitely. Yes. Because Keith, but like so, like Keith Ward. Well, Keith, does, no, Keith he holds to
2: he believes in Creation X Nihilo, right? Um, I'll, I could pull up some emails where he says I've convinced him to give up on creation. Of X okay, cool. Because so I—that's where I've, Okay,
0: because I've read a lot of Keith Ward. That's
2: where yep. some of my more like
0: where my thinking in those regards has come from. Yep. And so, but I also I've always been so convinced by your argument
2: about that. And so I'm like, yes. What do well, I do? Convince Keith oh, okay. as well. So,
0: most excellent, cool.
2: Well, before <laughs> so, I get to the last chapter, let me say yep. one other thing about the evil chapter um you guys know that i've been working on the evil stuff for a while and i've sort of addressed a, a variety of dimensions but there's one area that i've not really done much on and that is the issues of evil understood from a civilization or social or government kind of perspective and so in this chapter i want to try out some ideas uh that are linked basically with the notion that what we think is the best form of government aligns with what we think God's power is like. So if we think God is a top-down controlling kind of God, then we're going to think good government is top-down and controlling. If we think God is a sharing power, democratic kind of God, we're going to think that form of government is going to be. So I'm going to bring in some post-colonial thinking, um, and anyway, and kind of meld that into the the questions of even the problem of evil. Take evil from a personal well, i'll I'll talk about evil at a personal level, but I'll kind of move it to a more social macro level.
1: I love that. yeah, well, and certainly, yeah, and that's we're not functioning autonomously, like right? It, we, we yeah every, everything is paradigm and uh, we we see the 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 empire uh, model dominating throughout history the top down yes. and and how that's so congruent within our, our perception of de- the deities deity or deities uh and how that functions um but yeah, before...
2: empire that's the word i'm thank you for bringing that word up that's the word i'm gonna attack
1: yeah that because i do think yeah the, the the empire model the top down which of course we can find in the the Roman Pantheon, the Greek Pantheon, uh, certain perspectives, many perspectives of uh, the Christian God, uh, across the board. And again, uh, I, I forget who said it, but you know, uh, oh gosh, I'm I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but you know, uh, God created man in His image, and ever since we've been uh, trying to return the favor, you know that we are <laughs> uh, attempting to create God uh, in in this uh, image of, of of top down um fear based uh power over uh versus you know uh, a pyramid uh approach versus a circular um yeah. and 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 what i think that jesus of nazareth taught uh, and, and embodied uh was a very different uh lens on life and approach to the divine which i do think our perception of the divine uh, tr- trickles down into our experience of every second of reality uh whether to. whether we're cognizant of that uh perception of the divine you. or not um and that's everything from our relationship to our family to our peers to our work colleagues to our government um yep. it, it it's all radically interconnected. okay, so let me let me but before we before we go there, and I know I don't know I know we don't have much for you for that much longer, but I think this is a a, a very pragmatic question okay. um that uh a lot of our listeners ask as they engage open and relational theology particularly this idea uh, as we begin to see the death of uh omnipotence and the uh birth of uh omnipotence oh which by the way we've we, i realize we've not defined that yet so we, no, we've we no. got okay we, we we've we got to define <laughs> we'll get there. that a we'll get, there, yeah. <laughs> we'll get there we'll get there uh, before we define it the uh why as i was wrestling with that night in the middle of the night when i heard the potential per and by the way there was no burglar it was my delusion uh it was I think uh the a dish fell in the sink and crashed yeah. um but with if 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 God is not omnipotent God is not omnipotent why pray yeah w- what is the purpose of prayer in this in this in this lens on life in this perspective
2: yeah uh, I yeah I'm gonna answer that and take a little bit if you don't mind um because I think I think the question is really, if God is omnipotent, why pray? <laughs> so uh, let me start with that. <laughs> so most people think God is omnipotent, and yet they still pray a petitionary prayers asking God to do things. Now, those who think God is omnipotent and God predestined everything from all eternity, Man, it just makes no sense to me to think that you should ask God to change something about the future. Because the future has already been settled. It's already been predestined by God. So your prayers aren't going to change the future one whit. So... Even Calvinists I know don't pray like they're Calvinists. Most Calvinists I know pray like somehow their prayer might make a difference. Now, maybe they think they, they do that because God has determined that they would do that. They have no choice otherwise, but it, it this conceptually doesn't make a lot of sense. Most people I know who pray aren't Calvinists, however. They think God is omnipotent. They think God can single-handedly do whatever God wants to do. but They think God has asked us to pray. Now, this is kind of weird, because if you also think God is perfectly loving and knows everything, then it kind of sounds like God is on the sidelines, arms folded, looking at Josh and saying, you know, Josh, I'm omnipotent. I could fix this single-handedly, but I'm not going to get off my butt unless you ask me. Unless you pray, beg, plead say, pretty please God, or pray 79 times, I'm not going to do anything. Now that just does not sound like a loving God to me, but that kind of omnipotent God can up and do anything God wants to do. So what happens to most people I know who think through these scenarios, they go to a model that retains omnipotence, but they kind of become functional atheists. They say, My prayers don't affect God. They only affect me. My prayers aren't going to change anything God does. God's still omnipotent, usually, in their minds, but they don't know how it works. And they usually play a big mystery card. But then they say, But I know I should pray because I feel better about the world. It gives me peace, whatever. Now, I believe that's probably true, at least in a lot of cases. When I pray, I feel more peace. But I think there's a way to affirm prayer that says our prayers really make a difference to God and not just ourselves. And that difference or that way of thinking is an open and relational view of God. It says that God moves through time moment by moment like we do, and our activities in one moment have an effect on God and provide information, relational information, you might say, And that information can provide new opportunities or possibilities for God's actions in the next moment. And I'm not saying our prayers control God or allow God to be controlling, but God takes into the divine life, moment by moment, everything that happens, including our prayers, and then uses that to try to love to the very best in the next moment, given the situation and scenarios. So, in my way of thinking, if God is omnipotent, you shouldn't really pray. <laughs> but if God's not omnipotent and you have some some influence on what's going to happen because the future hasn't been settled, then you should pray. What do you think of that, Greg?
1: <laughs> I, I really that that makes so much sense. It, it 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 reminds me on one level. I remember when I was a five point Calvinist, and uh, i I read a book. That was trying to say uh if people are predestined why evangelize uh, yeah. and I, I remember it was so many like so many so many dancing maneuvers to try to yes. attempt to justify it and i yep. think the same thing with the idea of uh, omnipotence uh the the only idea is uh oh it, it's it's tremendously toxic the notion that if we pray hard enough or you know wh- where does the where does the meter begin to tip uh in terms of earnest? engagement or number of prayers or number of people right. to uh, make the the grumpy father in the barco lounger in the sky get up uh and yeah. uh listen to us uh versus... yeah the usual
2: oh go, ahead. oh go ahead Sorry. no go ahead the usual answer to as you know as a calvinist the usual answer to why you should evangelize which you could take that answer into why you should pray a petitionary prayer uh is God told you to. <laughs> right. just, that's just so obey. sexy. It's so sexy. <laughs> it is so
1: inspiring. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just got told it's you that to. That's
2: song I song I used to sing in Sunday school. Trust and obey because there's no other way. You know. Yeah. You just got to do yeah. what God tells you to do, even though it makes no sense. <laughs> right. Suck it up, Buttercup. This is life. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh-oh. So,
1: so, so I do think that's a. It's it's what I love about that. Again, the notion of omnipotence uh, on the surface uh, seems comforting, gentle, beautiful. But again, you press into that and it's chaotic and uh, with whipped cream. And conversely, again, this is just a perfect place to say it, the idea of omnipotence or the idea that God is not all powerful on the surface is very terrifying, especially for those of us that have been raised in the fish tank of uh, evangelical uh, or fundamentalist uh, Christianity. But when you actually begin to explore it, it is congruent. It is com- it, it is authentically comforting, not in not in a bullshit way, not in a mamby right. pamby way that uh, uh, is Santa Claus way, but in a way that actually invites our own agency and, yes. and announces our own participation and engagement. Ah, uh, in the process, we 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 are not recipients; just w- we are not victims, just waiting for rescue. Uh, that that we are in, that agents with the power to participate and make change in the present. That's moment.
2: beautifully said. Beautifully said. Yeah. So let me go to the last chapter then. Uh, before yeah. I go to the last chapter, can I recommend a? title for this uh, podcast other than Omnipotence is Stupid? I kinda, yeah. Please do, please yes. do. I'm curious. I kind of <laughs> like your stuff here, Greg. How about Whipped Cream Omnipotence? <laughs> or, <laughs> or whatever the cream was. <laughs> whipped Cream. It's Whipped Cream yeah. for sure, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so final chapter. I have been making arguments throughout the book that we should chuck Omnipotence, that we should get rid of it, it makes no sense. The Bible doesn't support it. We qualify it till it dies. The problem of evil makes it worse for everybody. Um, so, people have been reading my books. One of them called "God Can't," and you know they like to make uh, good-natured jokes about you know your God does nothing. <laughs> and uh, you know the, I, I I realize I really need to have a clear uh, articulation. Of what I think God does, not just what God can't do. And so this word omnipotent is a word I coined to try to say God's power is the power of love, or to put it a little more finely, God's power is the power of uncontrolling love. So the notion is that God is influential at all levels of existence, from the most complex to the least complex. God exerts influence throughout all creation at all times, but never in a controlling way, never in a way that exerts all power, that does anything possible, controlling God's influence empowers us and all creation. And then as you were saying so well, Greg, we then have a role to play in responding to God's empowering moment by moment. That means that our choices make a difference. The future is going to be partly determined on how we respond to this loving presence in our lives and in all creation. I can say God is the strongest because God is omnipresent and exerting influence everywhere, whereas you and I were localized. So I have a very powerful God. It's just this God is never controlling, in fact, can't be controlling. So that's the notion of omnipotence. Am- AMI is the Latin for uh, ami for love, like you get in words like amicable or amity uh, or amigo. And then potent is the word for power in Latin. So amipotence is the power of love, uncontrolling love, as I see it. Dude, so good.
1: So uh, I, I do think that's a very and a, a very different lens. And in, in my own journey, my deepest hope is that the nature, you know, uh, uh, the 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 nature of the universe, the nature of the divine is love. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's the nature of uh, creation, uh, the cosmos and of us, you know, in the Imago Day, in the exploration of what that means, but what that means to actually then translate into agency as yes. you were describing that, that, that means that at every moment, uh, again, for, for me as a Calvinist, uh many uh, you know two decades ago but as a five-point calvinist uh for many of my years there was this notion that 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 god is in control and i am just trying to pretty much the world's going to hell in a handbasket i'm yeah uh, and i'm I'm just trying to get as many people to get into heaven with me as possible to believe the right set of doctrine yeah to get into heaven and this notion is it 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 rescues us from what Brian McLaren calls the uh, evacuation plan for the next life, which is the you know <laughs> yep. in, invites us into the present moment to live in a very different way that we actually have power.
2: Yes, that, and I don't that, know if I wonder unpack if unpack that like,
1: man un- unpack that.
2: Yeah, I wonder if you were like me in that when 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 people sort of question that omnipotent sovereign God in control model or that view of God. I was told if you questioned it, the alternative was, Oh, well, your God does nothing. You know, you think you can do everything in your own power. Your God's a little weakling. And this is not just like your, uh, uneducated sort of Christian in the pew who makes this kind of claim. I was at a conference at Trinity evangelical uh, divinity school in, in uh, Chicago, pretty big deal. I was on a panel with a guy named, you guys probably know him, William Lane Craig, Bill Craig. Mm-hmm. Bill hears my argument, and he thinks I'm advocating deism, which is the idea that God is uninvolved in creation, because apparently for him, either God is can control or God does nothing. <laughs> and wow. I want right? to say no. Right. Yeah. I want to say there's a third alternative between omnipotence And impotence is amnipotence, a God who really is powerful through the power of love, not a a do-nothing God who sits up on Mars eating popcorn, but also not this manipulative God who's controlling everything all the time. This is a God who, through the power of love, is influencing all creation and calling for our response.
0: Yeah, which I think too, and you know, we've talked about this a million times on this podcast, Tom, but I think that is so much more a biblical perspective. This idea yeah. that people are being invited and called to, you know, be representatives to bear the image of God and to creation yep. like that. I'm not a Bible scholar, but that seems to be like a big deal within the pages <laughs> of the scripture.
2: <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I, so many of us have gone to the Bible with this notion of omnipotence in the back of our mind Yes. We've maybe said, well, you know, if you're, if you're from traditions like the one I've been from, which is a free will tradition, we've said, well, God usually gives free will and God doesn't usually control. But every once in a while, God will step in, kick some butt, make sure things get happen, you know, unilaterally, single-handedly bring about outcomes. Um, mm-hmm. But the Bible doesn't say that. And if we have that view of God, then we have all kinds of questions about why God doesn't stop evil in the world.
0: Yeah. And it also to it gets people like you and I off the hook for having to do anything because right. it's like, oh, if God is in control, then like who cares that my, uh, you know, African-American neighbors are being oppressed or who cares that like these gay people are being lynched in the streets because God's in control. So it doesn't really fucking matter.
2: Right, but like when right. you're like,
0: well, wait a minute. If in each and every single moment, God is active and present you know, trying to bring about the most beauty and love and goodness and whatever. And then God is luring us into that. The invitation is there. We can participate. Uh, but like it, God requires our participation, our fidelity, whatever you want to call it. Um, it then it's like, oh, well, here's an actual transformational vision uh, for what it means to be truly human, mm-hmm. which I think is was Jesus's whole thing.
2: You know, know, and think about, you know, those people who continue to have omnipotence in the back of their mind, who say God's in control, but they do want to say bad things happen that God doesn't want. So, you know, maybe we'll we'll talk about um, racial violence. We'll talk about George Floyd. You know, they'll say, well, God is omnipotent, but and God could have stopped what happened to George Floyd, but God allowed it. We can trust that God's in control because the really important stuff God will make sure happens. But then what that says is that all the things like George Floyd really wasn't that important to God, right? (laughs) And that just doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like a God who really loves all of us all the time. So to say that God needs us, needs our participation and cooperation, that means our agency matters. So uh, that's so good. Uh,
1: And, you know, I'm a second breath. We're all about spiritual practice. We're all about kind of the alignment of the mind, heart, and body and beginning to pay attention. And of course, we know in the West, we always talk, we're radically head centric. You know, we live in the realm of ideas. Uh, We believe if we understand something well enough, we'll experience transformation. Well, we know that's rubbish. You know, that information alone (laughs) never actually transforms us. But Tom, in your experience, as we're in, as you're engaging this God of omnipotence, and uh, in, in the present moment, like what does that look like on the daily basis? Like internally within you, like as maybe you're uh, having s- s- some frustration with a colleague or someone cuts you off in traffic, or you get in line at the grocery store and it's ten people deep uh, and or, or you get a call from someone you don't want to talk to, you know, what does on, on a on a real present tense level, How does it unfold for you, this invitation of God to participate uh, in creation in a new way? And I'm talking on the mundane level of the everyday.
2: Yeah, well, you know, some things have kind of become second nature to me and other things I, I am more conscious about. The ones that have become second nature to me are, I don't ever wonder when bad things happen. If these bad things are happening a part of, as a part of God's plan, <laughs> you know, like, freedom, freedom, <laughs> Yeah, like that never crosses my mind anymore. Earlier in my life, it did. You know, if I went through a horrible situation, I would say, oh, maybe God's punishing me or, you know, this is a part of some plan for somebody else. And then I'd have this sort of lack of confidence and mistrust of God. But I don't even think that way anymore. My next step, and this is still sometimes more conscious, is I say to myself, okay, well, if God's uncontrolling and God is present and active and wanting to influence toward the good, how might I imitate God? That's a big thing in my theology, imitating a God of love. What might it look like for me to be non-controlling, uh, persuasive, wooing in a winsome way, influence things as best as I can toward what is going to move toward flourishing, well-being, wholeness, beauty, goodness, forgiveness, reconciliation. So uh, my kind of response is first, and and again, this is really not even conscious anymore because it's become ingrained. I don't think that God is causing these bad things, but I do have to carefully try to ask the question, now, how might I, be God's metaphorical hands and feet and respond to this situation.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And I, and I think it's that pragmatic, right? I mean, I'm, on one level, it's yes. organic and intuitive, but it's also very intentional uh, yes. on the daily. And I remember uh, w- another interview I had with you with second breath, you talked about kind of your, your daily engagement was uh, this, this, not rubric, this lens of love. You know, yes. what what does it mean today for me to love, to to embody love and live out of love, and that that is your compass, that's your north star, yep. uh, and that's resonant with this the- theology? I mean, maybe just kind of, just, just spend a second talking about that. Yeah,
2: that's at the heart of this theology, as far as I think about it. You know, uh, people come to open a relational theology through a bunch of different lenses or avenues or, or or um, quests you might say Uh, some people have the problem of evil at the at the center and that was important for me other people are trying to reconcile their faith and science some are asking questions about their moral intuitions can my moral intuitions fit a religious tradition because the way some christians talk it doesn't sound like our my moral intuitions can be trusted so there's all these different ways For me, it's the questions of love that bring me to open a relational thought. Conceptual questions, but also very pragmatic questions. What might it look like for me to live a life of love? Right now in a conversation with both of you, what is the loving things that I could be doing? And that goes down to really nitty gritty things like, you know, how am I, like right now I'm using my hand to emphasize things. You know, is that the best way to communicate in this moment? Um, you know, I turned down the he- he- A little bit ago because it was getting too hot in here. I was loving myself there because I was thinking this is way too hot. (laughs) So I'm I'm making choices uh for what's good and helpful to promote overall well-being, which includes my own often. Um, and that's the way I see my way of living in the world in relation to God, others, and myself.
0: Yeah, I yeah, I dig it, Tom, and I and I think too, and I've I've told you this before, I'm not trying to kiss your ass. So forgive me but i think it it comes one of the reasons i continue to engage with your work is because i think uh in all of my interactions i've had with you you um put forth and show the characteristics that you claim are important to you and so i appreciate Mm. that um Mm, and i think that i think that. that yeah i think it matters because i've engaged people who say nice things and then are assholes and probably i might and i might be one of those people so i'm trying every day to no get better. no josh no <laughs> but um but so tom i i still have i have like two um questions that i'm interested to see if you in, engage with in your book and they're okay, i was good. about to Lay say on me. two tiny questions but i don't think they are because they're massive fields of study. So the first one um, has to do with uh, within the realm of like atonement and soteriology. Okay. Um, So because that's one thing that I get asked all the time uh, when I talk to friends about this kind of stuff. Um, And I know too, like within an open and relational perspective, but also within a lot of process perspectives, um, people, including myself, are very – uh, weary of any kind of theory that suggests that something like divine violence or sacrifice is necessary or good or something like that. And so um, within this perspective that you're bringing forth, God's not omnipotent, but is, um, you know, love power, offering love power. What does something like atonement and soteriology look like?
2: Yeah, I'm not gonna address those in this book, but I want to write a book on that subject before I die. <laughs> Excellent. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. I will read
0: it whenever you write it.
2: <laughs> I actually have another idea though. I think okay. I think Josh Patterson should pursue a doctoral degree in open and relational thought and address that question. I agree. That Josh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I I think that that that
1: right now. Tom is a conduit of the divine wisdom, of <laughs> Sophia, and and that is prophecy. That we just witnessed prophecy as Tom as
0: Tom, as Tom taps in and gives in to the lore of God <laughs> in each passing moment. Uh, oh, that's I, right, Tom, yeah. I would, I honestly would. L- All right, so it's funny you say that because you know I've I've messaged you a few times. I would love to do that. Um... I am actively pursuing options to put me in a position to be able to do that. Um, But it's funny, not necessarily atonement, but but what's funny to me is that um, atonement theology was something that when I was still a pastor, I was very passionate about, did lots of work around atonement. Um, And then I kind of stopped because, you know, it's too much to go into, but I was like, this is a big fucking adventure and missing the point. And I'm so confused. And then I got asked to teach a class on atonement for my friend Jace. <laughs> and then Trip puts me on an atonement panel with three different <laughs> like theologians and scholars yeah. at Theology Beer Camp. Uh, and so atonement keeps coming up. And so I – So it sounds like – I me, like
2: your like- idea. Sounds to me like the lure of God is not just coming through it's me, pr- it's coming through yeah. many other avenues. Many sir. people. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds Josh, it sounds cool like people. People. you're
1: you're you're trying to flee to Tarshish, right? Just go to I, the <laughs> Inipa, man. <laughs> That's what I think is happening.
0: well put, Greg. Well you're put. Not, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good deal. So I think you're so on what's this, we'll we'll leave it at that. I think you're onto something. Okay, what's the second question? Um, so the second one has to do with uh the realm of eschatology. Okay. And actually, like a, a you know, like a, a listener asked this as well. Um, basically, within this perspective, um, how they phrased it is, how sure can we be that God wins within within Tom's perspective? That's
2: Great the language question. that they use. I love it. Yeah, I love it. And it all depends on what it means for God to win. To win, right. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot so, of assumptions baked into the question. Yeah. Here. Well, I think that's the the question. If if it means for God to win, that God always loves all the time, then I my perspective offers that kind of win. And that may seem like so obvious, like every perspective offers it, but I don't think it. they do. <laughs> I think most perspectives don't offer the love wins or God wins version. And mean by that, God continuously lo- loves at all times and never gives into contr- coercion. Um, so if that's what it means for, for God to win, I can give that. If it means that God wins, the how sure I can be of that is that Uh, there's guaranteed that everyone will cooperate with God by living a life of love freely, then I can't offer that guarantee. However, I can't offer that hope because in my view, God never gives up calling, never gives up inviting in this life and the next. And because God's love is relentless, never giving up, we have the hope that God will ultimately convince everyone and everything that could possibly respond to God to say yes. So, um, no guarantee that God wins in that sense, but the real possibility that God wins in that sense, and the guarantee that God wins in the sense of always loving all the time, everyone in this life and the next. That's so. Good. I think. I'll, I think I'll put that in that last chapter actually. The more I think about it, because that's a common question. And if I'm talking about what God can do, then that's going to be the you know, can God win at the end? That's yeah, I'll, I'll put that in there. Yeah, I think that's you bit just influenced huge. the book, man. This is another affirmation but I think, you need to
1: get that PhD.
0: I think the I think that bit is is really important um for a lot of people. They ask that. Um, and they also too, this is, you know, I said two questions, but one other one, and we've talked about this on other episodes, so we could just tell people like, Hey, go listen to those other episodes. But, um, one of them that comes up as well, maybe, and maybe you've addressed this in your like, what God can do chapter is the idea of like, um, prophecy, which again, that brings so many assumptions to the text. Like what is the Bible trying to do? All this kind of stuff. It's a very messy topic, but. That's something that I get asked a lot as well when I when I talk with friends about this. Is like, okay, well, like, what about the prophecies in Scripture? So, like, yeah, if, if that's a good which, question, it's not yeah, one I'm going to
2: address in this book because that one has more to do with what God knows. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah.
0: It's more of an omniscient question. Yeah,
2: cool. Yeah, I've addressed Makes it sense. in some books, but I don't have a full book uh, devoted to that. But that's an important question.
1: No, yeah, so yeah. I'm going to ask something that's probably not going to be in the epilogue uh but I, I just want to I, I kind of name this with uh I, there there tends to be with the uncertainty of the future the the fact and I'm going to get you know of course we as humans have a very anthropocentric uh view of the entire universe uh let alone our daily lives there's been six distinct as far as the last I looked uh, uh events that wiped out life uh, on planet Earth um the 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 nature of the universe seems inherently uh, chaotic uh, in terms of uh, how things are unfolding, while simultaneously constantly moving towards uh, greater complexity and wholeness and ultimately consciousness. But let's just say uh, that there's a we destroy ourselves. Uh, you know, we get wiped out. Uh, in terms of the, the the nature of God within the universe, what is your perspective like? Again, we're so anthropocentric. Everything we're talking about tonight is just you know that that we are so important. Of course, within the history of the fourteen billion years of the universe, we are the last millisecond of the second in the uh, fourteen billion years clock. I'm yeah. just curious in terms of uh, this. This is not just kind of uh, uh, esoteric curiosity, no. but. But pulling us away from, kind of, uh, 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 you know, looking too closely um, with, within an anthropocentric lens. What is your perspective on the nature of the universe uh, and 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 the divine? And and what yeah. would it mean if uh, we're wiped out? Which we just had an interview. Uh, Josh and I just interviewed uh, about uh, what was his name? Josh in the Anthropocene. Uh, t- Timothy Beale. Timothy mm-hmm. Beal and saying pretty when much when time you is know, short, yeah. When time is short, and just saying, look, the the the, the ship has sailed. This this we're, we're within a few hundred years of our species being wiped out in terms of the environment. Um, and so, where do we go from here? Like within within an open and relational perspective, and the nature of God within the the entire cosmos. Where do you go with that, Tom?
2: Yeah. There's a couple of things that helps me to be remain hopeful <laughs> despite the uh, current uh, current state of affairs. One I've mentioned, and that is, I think God everlastingly creates. And this creating is not just localized to our particular planet. So I have no, no problems believing there's life on other planets and that there was life preceding our universe and will come after. So, um, You know, maybe that sounds, uh, maybe that diminishes maybe people's view of themselves because they thought they were the center of everything. But um, in my view, God's always creating, always has been, and I have no problems thinking there are other creatures on other planets that God loves and and is creating. Secondly, um, I think God loves cockroaches and butterflies and worms And lots of other creatures. And I think if humans get to the place where because of climate change, global warming, humans can no longer survive on this planet. I suspect lower or less complex uh, forms of life will continue. Maybe the cockroaches will continue. And God loves cockroaches. I don't think cockroaches are as complex as humans. And so the kind of love relationship God desires for creatures will not be as rich with a cockroach as it will with Greg. But there's still a relationship. Thank you, you, Tom. I just want to pause
1: here and say thank you.
2: (laughs) I'm going to
1: put that on a bumper sticker. Thank you,
2: Tom. (laughs) So the first one, God always creating here and everywhere else. Second one, God loves everything, even the complex or the, the simpler creatures that will likely survive even with a massive climate change. And third, I happen to believe in life after death. So I think that humans and perhaps other creatures will continue to have subjective experience after their bodies die I don't know for how long, I don't know if it's literally forever or it's just a mighty long time, but that continued subjective experience beyond the death of the body can be a kind of love relationship that can be deeper because we're not constrained and in pain given certain bodily issues we currently have. I'm not a... I'm not a gnostic. I'm not against the body. I'm just saying a uh, a continuous subjective experience can help some of us who are dealing with massive body pains to say, oh, I'm looking forward to that day when I don't have to suffer the way I do now. So that way of thinking means that even if the the planet goes to hell in a handbasket, environmentally speaking, um, I still might continue to have some kind of pleasure in a subjective experience after I die. So there's three reasons. That's great, to hope. man. That's
1: that's really good, brother. No, oh, thanks, really Greg. Good. Yeah, man. That's that's hopeful and helpful.
0: Yeah, I I concur because that's that's like honestly, Tom for me one of the things that I struggle with the most. And my this actually most things I say theologically don't piss off my wife. Um, she <laughs> <laughs> she's pretty open to hearing me, you know, say things even though she doesn't care as much as I do. Um, yeah but one thing that I really struggle with is like the whole life after death thing. I just don't know. I don't have any. Yeah. I don't know either. (laughs) category or concepts for that, but the hope, but the hope that is offered is, is uh, there's something to that. Um, and so I, I appreciate that, but, um, I guess just one thing to, to kind of wrap this up and, and land the plane, so to speak, um, because it's something that has been coming up in my readings most recently, uh, multiple times. And it's actually something that uh, Jonathan Foster brought up when we spoke with him uh, just, I don't know, a few days ago, um, is the idea of beauty. Mm. And within a lot of like uh, process relational thought, uh, beauty carries a lot of weight, right? It's it's a very uh, a powerful thing. And so... A lot of what you offer and what a lot of what I find appealing about, you know, the uncontrolling love of God and God can't implore form love and, you know, omniscience is dumb or I mean omnipotence is dumb, <laughs> um, <laughs> is the inherent beauty present within it. So mm-hmm. where like is beauty something that you take seriously and consider within your work? Especially with something like this, when you're offering love power, uh, to to
2: people in the world, yeah. Is it okay if I get kind of philosophical just for a moment? Drop it
0: like it's hot.
2: Yes, I hit love it, it. I hit it. Hit it. Hit <laughs> it. All right. Uh, philosophically, for for millennia, there's been a triumvirate of truth, beauty, and goodness that philosophers have said are at the very old heart. Of what matters most in reality, uh, what things are true, what is good, and what's beautiful. And you've mentioned the beautiful aspect of it. If we isolate either any of those away from the other two, we get distortions. You know, you know, probably know. Greg mentioned his background, and sometimes folks who are in like a legalistic kind of background, they really are incredible when it comes to questions of truth, but. Their devotion to truth, when it's uh, devoid of questions of goodness and beauty, becomes really yucky, harmful, becomes legalistic in ways that aren't aren't healthy. Uh, People who are devoted entirely to beauty sometimes miss out on the values of trying to live the good life, and in their quest for the beautiful, they end up uh, destroying themselves in ways that are unhealthy. in the the quest for what's good, can easily end up in moralism. You know, your big list of rules and people who live trying to be the good girl or the good boy or the good they or whatever, they end up oftentimes being um, moralistic in ways that aren't, they're not fun to be around. I like to think of love as sitting in the center of that triad as a way to bring all three of those insights, beauty, goodness, and truth together in a kind of harmony. And so when you say that I emphasize love an awful lot and it seems to resonate, I like to think that um, I'm not neglecting truth. I'm not neglecting trying to live the good life or beauty, but I'm trying to bring them all together together uh, in, a, in with a word that, of course, words never, you know, capture reality fully, but this way of bringing the best of all three together in one, um, concept seems so, so poor of a, of a word, uh, one reality, I'll say one reality that brings those together.
0: Yeah, no, I think, that's well said. And I drew myself a little diagram because I like. Oh, I love <laughs> I <like> it. <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, but I like that too. And and now, as you say that, as I'm sitting here and thinking about it, I think it's true because um, part of the allure for me of uh, open relation, open relational theology, uh, you know, process relational theology, is that it resonates deeply uh, with my experience. Yes. And yeah. it has which then leads me to truth. And yeah. then it presents to me a picture of, of God and of life and of existence and of creation, the universe, whatever that is also both good and beautiful. Mm-hmm. So it, like it, that, uh, I don't know. I I drew this diagram and um, I know that recently there was like a slideshow of like some of your stuff that was put together Oh, you, that should this, be on the new slideshow? This, yeah, this this <laughs> th- this should be put in the slideshow. That's good stuff. Or right? or or that's in the
1: introduction to your uh, uh dissertation. That's,
2: God. That's, oh, there no. you go. God. All right. So that's your dissertation. You Greg. That's your... Yeah. <laughs> uh
1: well, well, Tom, man, I know uh we've we've had you for an hour and a half, a little over that. And it's always such a joy to talk to you, man. Uh
2: well, thank you for letting me workshop these ideas and giving me some some ways to articulate them better. I appreciate it.
1: Well, it's, yeah, it's, most a, gift. Definitely. it's a gift to us. I think it's a real gift to our listeners. Um, I think these are real questions. This is not just uh, esoteric theological brain candy, but this is uh, <laughs> the essence of, uh, again, what we talked about earlier, that our understanding yeah. of the divine— uh it impacts and really actually defines our uh, experience of every second of life and begins mm-hmm. to shape every relationship every interaction from uh the uh the person checking us out at the grocery store to our family members to our city to our states to our culture uh and yep. so and 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 what what you're doing is creating congruence, uh a, a system that invites love and, and, and sanity uh into the whole system. So uh I know as I said at the at the beginning, yeah, I, I count you as a friend, but I also have mm. to just admit my fanboying Josh says uh. look, <laughs> I'm not trying to kiss your ass. Uh that's in, in Josh's <laughs> language, but it's a real treat, man. It's I would treat. never but, swear
0: come on. <laughs> oh, Josh, you're so full of shit. And so,
1: but, but Tom, just thank you, man, for your courage, oh. to lead into your true self in Thomas Merton's language, uh, and have the courage to, uh, articulate your authenticity. It's a real gift, uh, to our listeners. And I know for Josh and I, we talk about you all the time behind your back in great ways.
2: So thanks for,
1: uh, thanks for joining us, man.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Greg. And thanks, Josh. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks for hanging out. And uh, just briefly, I I will say this. Um, so I've been talking to Noel about uh, Ortcon in oh July. good. Both and you I'm and like,
2: Greg need to come to that.
0: Yes. So I am I am I am uh trying to lure her, and she's very intrigued. So, um, especially with the national park thing. So I've uh, I've uh, I'm, I'm talking good. her into it. So. Uh, that would be that would be awesome. I'm I'm looking forward to that. So, awesome, it should good. be a good time. Yes, and just All for right, our listeners,
1: OrdCon's Open and Relational Theology Convention. Yeah, Ort-Con. I'll give a plug for yeah. it. Can
2: I give a plug? Yeah, for it? big Hit time, it, man. Plug yeah. away. Open and Relational Theology Conference, July 10 through 11 at the Grand Targhee Resort which is nestled between Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park it's at about 8000 feet it's a ski resort but we go in the summer and have a great time talking about open and relational thought all week long and then touring the parks and doing hikes and horseback riding and mountain biking and it's just a blast this year uh Ilya Delio is one of our speakers. Oh Ooh. my god. I love Ilya Delio <laughs> blows my mind. Yeah. Oh trip Fuller is a speaker. Bruce Epperly's a speaker. Trip Fuller, you're allowed ah, Bruce. Yeah. Yep. Well, um, since you
0: said trip, I'm not going now.
1: Uh, trip. Oh my god. What kind of her- heretical sh- conference is this? This is not a
0: homebrewed Christianity glass in my
2: hand. So don't tell him that's the case yeah so and there's others speaking too but it's it's uh really well worth and really in terms of cost it's far less expensive than a lot of people might think because we get the resort at a pretty cheap price and anyway it's it's a really good deal yeah awesome. i'm
0: excited for it tom um so right i'm i'm too. actively working to make it a thing
2: <laughs> i love Me it too. Me <laughs> cool too. <quick>.
0: good deal <laughs> all, all right. right yeah see you guys later sweet all right and Thanks. listeners thank you so much as always for hanging out and uh go in peace